Uh, the Lord is sovereign, isn't he? Uh, sovereign over all things, all places, all people, the good, the bad, the ugly, the highs, the lows, mountaintops, and the valleys. And so we're confessing that and believing that this morning. And so, again, as always, it is a privilege to stand before you and serve you with the Word of God. In Protestant churches, historically, the highest point in churches was the pulpit. And it was such, indicating that we all stand under the Word of God. The Word of God has the primacy in our churches. And so, this morning, I want to talk about the return of the King. Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. That's the confession of the church. Listen to Acts 1, 9 through 11. It says this, And when he had said these things, and they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him, that is Jesus, out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Christ will return bodily, visibly, personally, authoritatively, and majestically. Um, The goal this morning is anytime we get on the second coming, I mean, it's like Christians get a little buck wild, right? (laughs) And they start saying stuff that you're like, what? Where in the world are they getting this from? Um, So the goal for us this morning is is not to pick up diagrams and make maps and charts. The goal of talking about this subject is that we would roll up our sleeves, pick up our cross, and get to work until the king returns. And so I want to bring clarity on this issue of this majestic, bodily, visible, personal, authoritative return of Christ. Um, And so with that being said, let's let's pray one more time, and let's jump into it. Father, we pray that your name would be exalted this morning. Lord, it has been a hard week watching the news um, at our jobs, in our homes. Lord, we pray as we think about your return, you would cause us to await it from heaven like Christians have done so for thousands of years. And so God, give us wisdom Give us clarity. God, help us to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is you, Jesus. And so, Lord, as we look at your word and what it says about this glorious return, God, help us to long for it, to look for it, to hasten it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen. So, before we jump into what's going to happen when Christ returns, the question is, why preach on this subject? Why preach on the return of Christ? And so the first reason I have for you is it helps us understand God's game plan for the universe. It, help us, it helps us understand God's game plan for the universe. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Or Hebrews 9, or Hebrews 1 rather, 1 and 2, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. And so the writers of the Bible had salvation history in mind. Creation, fall, flood, the calling of Abraham, Israel, the prophets crying out in the wilderness, the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ. In, in God's big game plan, the second coming 
is the next big event at hand. This is what it means to say we're living in the end. We're living in the last times. And we've been that way for 2,000 years. And so preaching on the second coming helps us understand what is to come. Secondly, it helps melt the lead in our shoes. It helps melt the lead in our shoes. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. C.S. Lewis says, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with many pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for our home. You mistake this world for your home, you're not going to be about God's business. This world is not our home yet. Brothers and sisters, if we love the world, become like the world, live like the world lives, we will never reach the world for Christ. And so... It helps us understand what God is doing in the universe. It helps us melt the lead in our feet and be obedient to the Great Commission. And it helps us long for the return of Christ. Listen to the way the scriptures describe Jesus' return. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. This is Paul. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which, it, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. One more, 1 Corinthians 1, 6 and 8. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Loved his appearing. Wait for his return. One more. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting his return. And so the early Christians and Christians for centuries have not only waited and longed for the return of Christ, they worked toward that end. Everything they did was in light of that day. Why was this the case? What happens... When Jesus splits the sky and enters back into human history bodily again. And so this is what we're focused on this morning. Really, I'm going to add another reason. This is not in the notes. We need to be encouraged. Goodness. If you're watching the news or you have watched the news this week, it is very discouraging. I mean, it is gloriously dark outside. School shootings pandemics, political disarray, broken families, sociological movements that are harming children and then harming others. Man, we need to be encouraged by the authority and majesty of Jesus and what he promises to do when he returns. Lest you think Jesus is not in charge, he is still on that throne, even when people are acting a fool below. And so I think by focusing on what the Lord will do when, when he splits the skies, it'll encourage us. And so we're going to be looking at a few, or a lot of scriptures this morning. And so if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, get ready. Get ready to flip those pages. So what happens at the return of Christ? And I want to say I'm focusing on the big things that all Christians agree on. I'm not focusing on the, the things that Christians split churches over or start denominations over or Christians debate over. I'm talking about the big stuff we all agree on.
And so here's the first one. What happens at the return of Christ? The devil is defeated. Sin, evil, and death itself are no more. The devil's defeated. Sin, evil, and death are no more. Listen to Revelation 29 and 10. I'm almost tempted to sing it. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Or Revelation 20 verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Obviously, there's a lot of apocalyptic images here. They're colorful, they're flowery, they're showing, they're jolting on purpose. It's almost like a fantasy novel, the book of Revelation. But the point is clear. When Jesus returns, certain realities will never return again. They will fade away. The devil will be destroyed. Um, Christians are, are sometimes looked down upon for believing in a personal devil. But ladies and gentlemen, I'm not sure you can make sense of the mass evil within this world without believing in a real personal evil entity known as Satan. There's a lot of evil out there. And man is responsible for a lot of it. But the devil is real. And he will really be destroyed in the end. Furthermore, sin. I mean, in this life, we fight against the enemy of our souls. We fight against our sin. We fight against evil, both large and small. But we do all this knowing that one day it will all be finished. Even death itself one day will die. There's coming a day when King Jesus himself will place his boot upon the neck of Satan and crush him forevermore. Sin will be no more. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just feel just plain awful, bad. Valerie can preach on this, a better sermon than this right here. I, I mean, I, apart from Jesus, goodness, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really bad. Um, I'm, as we say in North Alabama, I'm toe up from the flow up, y'all. <laughs> like, hot mess express, I don't think he's going to make it bad. And so... Goodness, the, the fight against sin is tiresome. It's weary. But the Bible teaches that it will end in the end. The flesh will be destroyed and give way to something far more glorious. And so the, the first point of encouragement, death will die. Sin will be destroyed. The devil will be vanquished, defeated. The second encouraging thing that will happen the resurrection of our bodies will occur. The resurrection of our bodies will occur. God will do to us what he did to Jesus on the third day. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. 
Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Um, we, we always run the race or run, run the risk of being more spiritual than God. You know, people's picture of the end is very fuzzy, sometimes confusing, and sometimes unbiblical. Like people think about the end, and they think they're going to be sitting on clouds playing harps, and they're going to look like a little cherub. No, they're not. The goal of creation is for creation to meet its intended goal. God and man will dwell bodily on the new heavens and the new earth. And we will do that having new resurrected bodies. The trumpet will sound and we will rise from the grave with new resurrected bodies akin to Jesus' resurrected bodies. And let me encourage you. These new bodies will not be susceptible to pain, to brokenness, to disease, to death. For the old order of things has passed. I mean, I'm a young man. But I'm to the point in life where if I sleep the wrong way, I wake up and feel it. That wasn't a thing for 30, 31 and a half years. It is a thing in, in, at, at 32. Our bodies will be similar to Adam and Eve's bodies before the fall. One difference, though, is we may keep a few of our scars. Think about Jesus after the resurrection telling Thomas, look at the nail marks. They will be trophies and tokens of his grace. Listen to Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. Sin, Satan, death will be destroyed, and our bodies will be made new. Second encouragement here. It's not just our bodies. Heaven and earth are rejuvenated, restored, and replenished. A new heaven and a new earth arise out of the purifying fire of the old. So again, it's not just us getting a new resurrected body. God will do to the whole universe what he did to Jesus on the third day. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He's not going to kick this world to junk. He's not going to blow it to smithereens and have us floating around in a celestial sky. No, beloved, he is going to fix this broken world. He's going to unite heaven and earth in a marriage like we've never seen. And so how does this work practically? There will be no more exploding volcanoes. No devastating hurricanes. Can I get an amen? Amen. Twisting tornadoes, deadly cancer cells, deformity, starvation, mudslides, trash heaps, wildfires, earthquakes, anthrax, COVID, pestilence, and all manner of destructive forces that belabor and beguile God's good earth. They will be gone. Listen to Rev- or Romans eight twenty two and 23. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Randy Alcorn says, do you sense creation's restlessness? Do you hear groaning in the cold night wind? Do you feel the forest's loneliness, the ocean's agitation? 
Do you hear longing in the cries of whales? Do you see blood and pain in the eyes of wild animals or the mixture of pleasure and pain in the eyes of your pets? Despite vestiges of beauty and joy, something on this earth is terribly wrong. The creation hopes for, even anticipates, resurrection. So the devil, sin, and death are destroyed. We're given resurrection bodies, and the earth will be restored and resurrected as well. And this is very apropos, the fourth, fourth encouragement. Justice happens. Justice happens. Listen to Acts chapter 17, 30 and 31. The times of ignorance, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising that man from the dead. There's coming a day when Jesus will return and he will judge the earth. God's justice may be delayed, but it is not denied. From Genesis to Revelation, the, the consistent teaching of the scriptures is God will put the world to rights. He will fix it. He will judge it. And this is hope-sustaining. I mean, goodness, the news again, brothers and sisters. Our hearts melt within us. And we know, without a shadow of a doubt, human courts do not always get it right. Guilty people get away. And not only do they get away, they flaunt with it. But no one gets away from God's justice. The heavenly court does not fail. Psalm 96, 9 and 13, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. His justice will be an incredibly good thing. He is fixing, redeeming, reordering the earth. And we're not just going to watch. I mean, the scriptures teach that we'll take a part in it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.3. The only time this is said in scriptures, don't ask me questions because I know nothing about it. 1 Corinthians 6.3. Do you not know, talking to Christians, that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So we'll take part in the judgment and even have a role in judging angelic beings. Even Christians will stand before God, but for very different reasons than non-Christians. Unbelievers stand before God and must give an account of why they rejected Jesus, why they chose sin and did what they've done. Christians, however, stand before God and they have their ministries, their labors of the Lord and the service judged and then rewarded based upon their faithfulness. Angels are being judged, unbelievers are being judged, Christians are being judged. But lest you understand and lest anxiety and fear enters your heart at this moment, 
the judgment of believers is a judgment of rewards. We are, this is the, the next encouragement. We are rewarded, comforted, and vindicated at the return of Christ. Rewarded, comforted, and vindicated. Listen to Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We'll be comforted at His judgment. Vindicated at His judgment. And then listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And we will stand before the Lord in the end. And everything you've done, everything you've done for the Lord, whether people saw it or not, will be rewarded. Every bit of suffering will be righted and even worked backwards into heaven, adding jewels to your crown. Listen to C.S. Lewis. This is Gray's favorite quote. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And I want to say publicly, I don't know all of the will of God. But I do know he has a plan, even though we're not privy to all the details. But I will say this publicly. Everything a believer goes through is meaningful. Nothing is wasted. God allows what he hates to bring about what he loves. And heaven will reveal the plan and answer the questions that we have. There will be no loose ends. Frayed knots or kinks in the chain once we get to heaven. We will understand his wisdom and why he allowed such difficulties in our lives. The church I was at before here, I got a message this week that a kid in the youth group that I, who, that I taught at, he's not a kid anymore, but he has a tumor uh, in his brain. They had the surgery yesterday, they removed it successfully. But I'm thinking, he's a young guy. He's younger than I am. And yet, he's enduring that suffering. I mean, the family has questions, as would we. But there will be no questions in the end. And then furthermore, this is what we'll hear, brothers and sisters. Matthew 25 and 23, after we've labored for the Lord, after we've been on mission, after we've preached the gospel, prayed prayers, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what we ought to be living for. Labor for the Lord. Go to bed tired because you've labored so much during the day. Knowing that the Lord is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And the last encouragement I want to give you about the return of Christ. So death, sin, and Satan will be destroyed. We'll be given resurrection bodies. The earth will be rejuvenated, replenished. Justice will happen. We will be rewarded, comforted, and vindicated. Saving the best for last. We shall see him face to face. We are with him forever. Jesus will be all in all, unending bliss, eternal happiness, and supreme delight are ours forevermore. I mean, Psalm 73, 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. 
Revelation 21, 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. One more, if I'm permitted. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, at the return of Christ, face to face. Now I know in part that I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We shall see his face. I don't know about you, but I'm excited for that. I'm excited to be done with the battle of sin, the, the irksome frustration of the brokenness of this world, the sadness of my flesh. I'm excited to see my dad again, my grandmothers, and even to talk to the apostles and great men and women who've gone before us. But brothers and sisters, I'm most excited about seeing Jesus face to face. Heaven is heaven because God is there. Heaven is heaven because you will be with Jesus. It isn't about the streets of gold. It isn't about playing celestial golf. It isn't even about being reunited with old family members. It is about being with Jesus. If you were to offer the saints every joy, every delight, and every beautiful thing, every pleasure of heaven, but you take out Jesus, heaven itself would become hell to us. Because heaven is about Christ and seeing him face to face. And when we see him, his gaze will not only be welcoming and gracious, he'll be excited to see you. Probably tears in his eyes saying, "Now now you've arrived. But in seeing him, that moment of seeing him will literally transform us. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. When? Now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will see his face. And it will be so glorious, it will transform our faces. It will transform us. And so... That's why Christians have longed for this day for thousands of years. Sin, Satan, and death will be no more. We will receive resurrection bodies. The earth will be replenished, rejuvenated, resurrected. Justice will happen. We will be rewarded, comforted, and vindicated. And we will see him face to face. And so, what do we do with it? I mean, this this should affect the body of Christ, as we go out these doors to be the hands and feet of Christ. And so I'm going to leave you with five questions. Five questions here in light of this. Number one, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? That that day ought to transform how we live today. Jesus will come bathed in radiant splendor, enveloped with an atmosphere of indescribable brilliance, surrounded by the ear-piercing praise of angels and other Christians, blinding, brilliant light shining from his eyes, irresistible power coming from his hands. None will deny his beauty or escape his transforming energy. How then shall we live in light of that? The second question, who are you living for? Who are you living for? And if I'm honest, 
So often I'm living for the kingdom of Austin Kyle D. Armand when I have a master who rules and reigns above me. Listen to Randy Alcorn again. In the day that we stand before our master and maker, it will not matter how many people on earth knew our name, how many called us great, and how many consider us fools. It will not matter whether schools or hospitals were named after us, whether our estate was large or small, whether our funeral drew 10,000 or no one. It will not matter what the newspaper or history book said or didn't say about us. What will matter is one thing and one thing only, what the master thinks of us. Who are you living for? Third question, what are you living for? Who are you living for? Third question, what are you living for? Do people know that your blessed hope is the return of Christ? Or do people think it's your car, your job, your house, your family, your vacations, your 401k, the weekend, music, and the list can go on and on. And I, and I, I don't want to, again, I don't want to be more spiritual than God here. This is God's earth. This is his world. All things are made good by prayer is what he says in 1 Timothy. But we need to live in such a way that we showcase to the world that our best life is later, not right now. The best is yet to come. Jesse Duplantis can have the biggest mansion on River Road. He can have it. You, you got the bragging rights, Jesse. I want the biggest mansion in the new heavens and new earth, and I'm going to be working toward that goal right now. What are you living for now? Fourth question. What changes do you need to make right now? What small incremental changes... You right now, sitting under the word, what changes do you need to make in your life right now in light of the return of Christ? N.T. Wright says this, What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbors yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until that day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building God's kingdom now. And the last question, are you ready for the return of the king? Are you prepared, believer and unbeliever, to stand before him? I want to say this, if you're not a Christian in the room, God deals with, with sin in two ways. He deals with it on the cross by Jesus, our righteousness, our advocate, taking it for us. Or you deal with it on your own in hell. And only one of those options is sufficient. If you do not know the Lord, you need to accept the Lord before you see him. But believer in the room, it's better than you can think or imagine. 1 Corinthians 2.9, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. It will be beyond our wildest dreams. Because he's there. He's for us. And we will enjoy him forever. 
you will spend an eternity upon eternity, millions of years upon millions of years, chasing after him and him inviting you. And it will be so satisfying, so glorious, so beautiful. And you will reach the top of the knowledge of God, the joy. You'll get to the top of the mountain. You'll look, and there'll be another peak right before you. And he'll say, go deeper. Get to know me more. There are joys that you're not even aware of, and I'm inviting you in. Spend the next 10,000 years searching for this, and I'll make sure you find it. I mean, aren't you ready for that? Isn't that a glorious reality to hope for? Let's pray. Fight for us, O God, that we would not drift numb and blind and foolish into vain and empty excitements. Life is too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. Heaven is too great, hell is too horrible, eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch of it. And so God, help us to long for this, help us to wait for it, help us to pursue you, help us to change the way we're living in light of that day even now. And God, right now where we're at, help us to respond rightly in worshiping you in the splendor of your holiness. God, show us Christ as we worship. Show us Christ. Show us his beauty, his excellence, his nobility, his preciousness, God. Give us a vision of the king and his beauty and help it affect how we live this week. We love you, we praise you, and we pray all this in Jesus' mighty and precious name. Amen.